Every New Year's Day, millions of Americans make resolutions to change. And every year, the majority of those millions fail to change at all. And maybe you've been part of that. But as Christians, all of us want to change. All of us want to become more like Jesus. And yet, when it comes right down to it, change is hard, isn't it? It's like climbing up that icy slope, and just as we think we're making progress, we slip back to the bottom. So how can we change permanently in terms of our character, in terms of our behavior? How do we make changes so as not to conform to the world? How do we make changes so that we might become more like Jesus in practical and lasting ways? It's not easy, is it? And while it may be difficult, the good news is that the Bible promises change to everyone who trusts in Jesus as their Savior. And I want you to notice something very profound, and I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans 12 as we continue going through Romans 12, or the book of Romans. But Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it follows verse 1, right? That's important. And, and, and Paul addresses his readers, he addresses us as brethren, which tells us that those he was writing to were Christians. God had changed their hearts. They were no longer hostile towards God. They now loved God. They, they believed in Jesus as Savior. They're no longer living according to their own selfish desires. They've presented their bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. And all of that must happen before you can experience the change of sanctification, before you can experience the growth in godliness that verse 2 talks about. So, so how is it that we progress in our personal holiness? How do we progress in living lives of mercy to those around us? How do we kill the bad habits? How do we start new habits? How do we deal with our patterns of sin and temptation? Should we just make a list of things not to do and of things to do and simply try to stop doing these and start doing these? What is the process for us as Christians? Well, before we get to that, and yes, we will get to that in the next few weeks as we go through this, but why you want to change is crucial, always. And oftentimes, we want to change our lives or live a better life simply because we're unhappy with our life as it currently is. Or maybe God is getting our attention by allowing the consequences of our sin to make our life less than pleasant. But the danger, if that is our motivation, is that we just want out of the misery we're in, and we don't want to actually surrender to Jesus. We aren't presenting our life as a living sacrifice, moment by moment, day by day. We want to use God to get out of our problems, and then, like a genie, we want to put him back in the bottle and put him on the shelf till the next time we need him. That's not the Christian life. And that will never result in lasting change because our motivation is all wrong. As we saw in verse 1, the right motive for wanting to change is that we have experienced God's abundant mercy through Jesus Christ. We were sinners deserving his judgment when he graciously opened our eyes to see that Jesus died for my sin. And suddenly we find that he is abounding in riches for all who call on him. And so we cried out to him and he saved us. Now, out of gratitude for his mercy, out of a heartfelt desire to please the one who has rescued us from the judgment we deserve, we want our lives to bring him glory. 
That's the right motivation for wanting change. Our desires are now to please God and not to please ourselves. And verse 2 shows how to develop the response to God's mercy that verse 1 calls us to make. So read with me, if you will, the first five verses of Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for your spirit who inspired him to write uh, this letter to the Romans. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths that we have seen uh, in the first 11 chapters, the doctrine that we have seen of our justification and our sanctification. Father, we pray now that as we enter the uh, portion of this letter that shows us how those doctrines are to be lived out in our lives, that we would hear from you this morning, that you would speak to us from your word, that your spirit would uh, allow us to understand what you have for us. Uh, Lord, we know that the world's desire is to uh, conform us to what they uh, think and the way they think and the way they act, but that is not what you have called us to do. So, Lord, we pray that you would uh, be transforming us as we renew our minds in you and in your word day by day, that you might be sanctifying us and perfecting us in holiness until that great day when we are perfectly holy, when we see Jesus as he is and become like him. So, Lord, speak to us this morning, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Now, before we get into the first phrase of verse 2, we have to ask ourselves, is Paul contradicting himself here? Well, what do I mean by that? Well, what does he say in 1 Corinthians 9.22? Paul says, I have become all things to all men so that I may, be all, uh, so that I may by all means save some. How is becoming all things to all people not conforming to the world? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How does uh, this command to be countercultural relate to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 32 and 33, where he says, Give no offense either to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. How does not being conformed to the world fit in with not giving offense to the world? Because you can't always do both, can you? How does not being conformed to the world fit with pleasing everyone for the sake of salvation? Because you can't always please people if you refuse to conform to their thoughts and ways of life. And the reason there are questions like these is not because Paul speaks out of both sides of his mouth. No. It's not because Paul got confused. It's not because he changed his viewpoint and, and doctrine. No. Paul is teaching us two Christian principles which must be kept in balance with each other. When Jesus came into the world and lived and died and rose from the dead and set the kingdom of God in motion and unleashed the gospel into the world, these two principles went everywhere that the gospel went. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Well, these two principles are always going to be in tension with each other, okay? At times, they push in opposite directions, and the great challenge is for us to find the biblical balance. I like the way that Andrew Walls, in his book, The Missionary Movement in Christian History, uh, phrases these two principles. He calls them the indigenous principle and the pilgrim principle. What's indigenous mean? Well, originating in and naturally living, growing, or occurring in a region or country, okay? It's something native. In other words, the gospel can and must become grown in every culture of the world. It must fit in. It can and must find a home in every culture. Not that the gospel ever changes. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul's saying. But it fits everyone because all humans are sinners. Okay, that's the indigenous part. But at the same time, the gospel produces a pilgrim mindset in everyone that God saves. It loosens people from their culture. It criticizes and corrects the culture around them. It turns people into pilgrims and aliens and exiles and ambassadors in their own indigenous native land. So when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world in Romans 12, 2, and when he says, I became all things to all people, he is not contradicting himself. He's calling for a balance of these two principles. Christianity has found its way into all cultures because it can have unbelievably diverse expressions and forms. You know, our form of worship is not the way everyone worships, is it? You know, you go to Africa and the worship style is completely different. Does that mean we're right and they're wrong? Does that mean they're right and we're No. Right? It becomes indigenous. Uh, it fits into every culture. Every culture needs the gospel. But it has all sorts of different ways it expresses itself. Um, and yet, even though Christianity has this amazing uh, incarnational principle, if you will, everywhere it goes, it changes things. It shakes up the status quo. And there are many ways we can describe this tension. I'm going to go through a few because I think it's important we understand that. We say Christians are not, uh, Christians are in the world, but not what? Not of the world. Jesus prays in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. In other words, they're in the world. But to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, so as Christians, we are in the world. We're indigenous. But we are not of the world, and that's the pilgrim part. Or, or we say that Christians should be separate from the world and yet participate in it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. Okay, there's the pilgrim principle once again, right? But in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul limits the meaning of separation when he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. You are going to be associating with them, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. That's the indigenous part of this. We're not going out of the world. We're in the world. And one inclination is separation. The other is participation. And we have to balance those. Both are crucial. Uh, we could speak of it as adaptation and confrontation. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, Make it your ambition to live a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. In other words, what's he saying? Adapt. 
Don't make waves. Do what's fitting. Do what's uh, seemly. Live properly. And so he prays in 1 Timothy 2 that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified. But on the other hand, we're to be confrontational, are we not? He says in Ephesians 5, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. That's confrontation. That's not always appreciated by the world around us, is it? Which is why he says in 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be persecuted when you are not conformed to the world. So are you seeing it? It, it? There's adaptation and confrontation. There's participation and separation. There's in the world, but not of the world. Not conformed to the world, yet becoming all things to all men that some might be saved. We are indigenous, and yet we are pilgrims. You see the tension that is there between the two throughout Scripture? What's the easiest way not to conform to the world? Well, isn't it to separate ourselves completely from it? And Christian groups have tried that from time to time. But when we do that, when we separate ourselves entirely from the world, how do we fulfill the Great Commission? We can't. We can't. So we have to find that biblical balance between excessive adapting to the world and excessive confrontation in the culture that we live. We see this throughout Scripture. One example of this, the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought about and studied the kingdom of God as it's presented in the Gospels? It's fascinating. The kingdom of God has already come in Jesus Christ, correct? He says in Luke 11, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says in Luke 17, The kingdom of God is in your midst. Therefore, as subjects of the kingdom, the children of God, Christians, are at home here and now in our Father's kingdom. We are indigenous to this kingdom. But on the other hand, the kingdom is not yet fully here, is it? We have the promise, but the consummation still remains in the future. What did Jesus pray at the Last Supper? I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until what? Until the kingdom of God comes. So the kingdom of God is already, but it's not yet. There's that tension there. The kingdom has come in the king, Jesus. It has come in part, but it's not fully here. Therefore, we live as pilgrims in this society, in this world. We are waiting, we are yearning, we are longing. We are aliens, exiles, sojourners. We are our ambassadors. We are at home, yet not at home. Therefore, when Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, he's pushing on one side of this balance, okay? So, so my purpose has been simply to give a, a bigger picture of his thought and try to keep us in balance here. So, yes, we are to confront the world but we're also to adapt as missionaries. Yes, we are to be separate from the world, but we're also to participate in the world. No, we are not of the world, but yes, we are in the world. No, we are not to conform to this world, but yes, we are becoming all things to all people that we might save some. Yes, we are indigenous, but we're also strangers, and we live as pilgrims. So how do we know this balance between the two? Well, Paul gives us the answer, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good. And, you know, 
Don't you love it when devices freeze? <laughs> Do you have a copy there? Oh, it, I'm, I'm not having a, a brain moment here, honest. I'll keep that handy just in case it freezes again. Where was I? Be transformed. How do we know to balance these? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And we're going to be talking about that in the weeks to come. But the paradox and the challenge of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is that we live in this present age. But this present age will not last forever. You know that, right? There's greater things coming. We know there's a better age to come when Jesus will reign here upon the earth. And so we must live today by the values of the kingdom, by the values of tomorrow. We must live in this present age, but this present age must not live in us. Okay, you got all that? Is that a long enough introduction? What does verse 2 tell us? The first phrase, do not be conformed to this world. Okay, that's all the farther we're going to get in Romans chapter 12, verse 2 this morning. Do not be conformed to this world. That's been translated a variety of different ways. The NIV says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. The message paraphrases, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. New Living Translation, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. J.B. Phillips is perhaps the most famous paraphrase of this. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. The New Life Translation, do not act like the sinful people of the world. New Century Version, do not change yourselves to be like the people of this world. Amplified, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. James Montgomery Boyce translates it, do not let the age in which you live force you into its scheme of thinking and behaving. Jerusalem Bible, do not model yourselves on the behavior of the world around you. You know, no matter how it's translated, no matter how it's paraphrased, it's very practical and to the point. And as Paul tells us in verse 2, it falls nicely into three parts, and we're only looking at the first part today. He tells us what we're to avoid, being conformed to this world. He tells us what we're to do instead. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then he tells us the benefit that comes from this. We will be able to test and approve what God's will is. And so if you're comfortable writing in your Bibles, and there's nothing wrong with writing in your Bibles, I encourage you, circle those three words, conform, transform, renewing. Those are the keys here. And this verse gives us a negative command. That's what we're looking at today. Do not be conformed. It gives us a positive command. Be transformed. And it tells us how to do that, a plan of action, by the renewing of our minds. And so as Christians, we're not to be like the people of the world. We're not to be like those around us. We shouldn't act the same way the world acts. We cannot try so hard to fit into the culture that we no longer think and act like Christians. You know, the truth of the matter is the world around us is actively working against us. So the warning to us as Christians is we are constantly swimming against the stream. The current of the world is going the opposite direction. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't give in to it, and we should not be swept away by that. We are not to be conformed. What does that mean? Don't conform. 
The word conform translates a word from which we get our word scheme. Okay? In the negative sense, a scheme has the idea of a trap. You know, like those emails you get from Nigeria? That's a scheme, right? A trap. No, don't give them your bank account number. No, you're not going to get wealthy. No, it's a scheme. Since the devil is the god of this world, we shouldn't be surprised. We should expect that he is scheming against us. He is setting traps for us. And most of the schemes are very subtle, a way of just slightly molding us into the form of the world. Little by little, like the proverbial frog in the kettle that doesn't realize the water temperature is rising and he's paralyzed and boiled by the water. We can find ourselves being sucked in little by little into the world's way of thinking. The word also means to fashion. And A.T. Robertson offers this version. Do not take the world as your fashion plate. Well, Paul says we aren't to follow the fashions of this world, and I think that has less to do with clothing than to a whole way of thinking, but certainly clothing is involved in it as well. But we aren't to think, we're not to act or otherwise fashion ourselves after the schemes of this age. What's wrong with that? Well, this world is not all there is. This world is dying. This age will end. And the essence of worldliness is to live as if this is all there is. Like, this is going to last forever. True worldliness means to buy into the notion that this world is the only world there ever will be. And as Christians, we know that's not the case. So we aren't to allow ourselves to be conformed by that way of thinking. To say it differently, we have to stop letting the world form us after itself. Okay? It is possible for Christians to be molded by the world instead of by the word. Otherwise, Paul would not warn us of this. It's never good when we are being formed by the world. So let me ask you, what are you being molded by this morning? What are you conforming to this morning? Are you conforming to the world or to God's word? That's what it comes down to. And world isn't just a reference to the planet we live on here. The word is literally age. refers to this present evil age which is passing away in contrast to the coming eternal age in which righteousness will dwell among us. So, so one author defined the, the word world as the worldview of the unbeliever that defines the age in which humans live at any time in history. Okay, How does our society think? What are the politically correct notions of our culture? What are the philosophies of our times today? Well, we could spend a lot of time on this, but, but you know, we live in an age that supposedly tolerates everything, right? <laughs> tolerates everything, but believes nothing. Don't be like the world. And Paul says in Galatians 4 that Jesus gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from what? This present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Jesus did not die for us so that we might conform to this present evil age. No. He died to rescue us from this age so that our lives would glorify God. And yes, God has permitted this age to be under Satan's influence. We know that. Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 4, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, literally the God of this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Over in Ephesians chapter 6, he tells us, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to stand firm against the what? Schemes of the devil. For our struggle is, he goes on to say, against the world forces of this darkness. This age, the world in which we live, is a dangerous place. The, the mindset, the worldview around us is a dangerous thing. And the easiest thing for us to do is the exact opposite of what Paul tells us to do. He tells us not to be conformed. It's so easy to be conformed. Our, our natural inclination is to be conformed to the world's pattern of living and thinking around us. We are, by nature, believe it or not, conformists, right? Very on, early in life, we figure out we don't want to be different from everyone else. We want to fit in. We don't want to stand out. Monkey see, monkey do, right? Yeah, I just called y'all monkeys, okay? Deal with it. The change we need to make is to live in contrast to this evil world. We aren't to be conformed to the here and the now. The present age is going to be passing away. And even though we're indigenous to it, we are to live like pilgrims. So, so the command is not to be pressed into this world's mold, not, not to be guided by this world's schemes, not to be controlled by what goes on around us, by everyone else. And to do that, we have to understand that the influences of this age are unbiblical, they are ungodly, they are not lasting, they are not helpful, they are not desirable. We need to see this age and this world as bad. Okay? Why? Because it is. And because we live in it, we are soaking up the influence of this age all day long, every day. When you're shopping, when you're surfing the internet, when you listen to the radio, or watch TV, or go to the movies, or play video games, when you read books, or newspapers, or magazines, or go to classes, or have conversations, or even sit and listen to the deceitful temptations of your own heart, you are being influenced by this world. So for our own good, and for the good of those we come in contact with, we need to constantly be sifting through everything that influences us, scanning it for spiritual explosives, scanning it for subtle poisons so that we won't be changed or conformed by it. We cannot be passive when we live in enemy territory. Yes, we're indigenous, but we're pilgrims here. So don't be passive. Be active. One of the books I read on vacation last week is the story of uh, top turret gunner Arthur Meyerowitz, an American-born Jew who fought in World War II. He was on his second mission in his B-24, the Liberator, harmful little armful, when his plane was shot down over France. After a hard landing in which he severely uh, hurt his back, he stumbled upon some high-ranking members of the French resistance. He spent more than six months in France, posing as a deaf mute from Algiers. He had forged documentation from the French underground stating this, but it wasn't easy. And I want to just read you one of his first experiences using his forged papers. As Arthur reached the doorway and watched the woman in front of him hand her documents to the two officials, he saw his companions clustered on a curb some 20 feet away waiting for him, but ready to vanish into the crowd if he was detained. Papers, the French policeman barked. Arthur stood on the top step utterly still. 
Papers, now, the officer yelled, his eyes narrowing and his face flushing. The Gestapo agent, a stocky man with a ruddy face behind the haze of the cigarette in his raised left hand, fixed his light blue eyes in a feral stare on Arthur. He jabbed his right finger at Arthur and said, now. Arthur didn't even nod. He stepped off the bus and waited. If he reached too soon for the documents on the, in the inside pocket of his coat, either man might shoot him on the spot for making a suspicious movement. The German continued to glare at him and flicked the cigarette just inches past his head. Your papers, the policeman ordered, leaning in close to Arthur. Arthur looked blankly at him. The Nazi's right hand moved to the holster belted to his black shin-length greatcoat. He opened the cover and rested his hand on the exposed Luger pistol. The police officer took a step back and thrust out his right hand, his eyes now dark slits. Your papers. Slowly, Arthur unbuttoned his overcoat, held out the inside flap for both men. He reached slowly into the interior pocket and pulled out his ID card and papers. The Frenchman leaned forward and snatched them. He poured over the photo and the papers and cocking his head suspiciously at Arthur, gave them to the German who examined them for nearly a minute. While the two men muttered to each other in French, their eyes darted back and forth from the photo and the papers to Arthur. The policeman pointed to the photo and to the signature and then at Arthur. Arthur nodded. The German's mouth twisted into a sneer as he held out his clipboard and a pen and shoved them into Arthur's hands. Again, the Frenchman pointed to the identification card's signature and then at the pen. Deliberately, but not so slowly as to appear hesitant, concentrating so that his hand would not shake so much that the two signatures might appear different, he signed George Lambert. As he did so, the German moved a few steps behind him. Turn around, the Gestapo agent bellowed in French. Arthur kept his back to the man, finishing signing the clipboard and handed it to the police officer who was peering at him for any hint that he had heard the shout. The German walked back and both men examined the signature. The officer returned Arthur's documents. Arthur started to walk toward the curb where his friends waited, his hand trembling and sweaty as he slipped the ID card and papers back into his pocket. He had played his part perfectly, convincing the German and the policeman that a deaf mute named George Lambert had stepped off the bus. We often treat this world in which we live like a friendly home country, like there's nothing dangerous to be on guard about. But we must be careful, always vigilant, just like Arthur Meyerowitz was. And, and yes, I will give you the end of the story. He eventually escaped over the Pyrenees and made it back to New York. Fascinating story. But the point is, we live in a time and a place that we must be constantly vigilant because the world is constantly trying to influence us and not for the good. Philippians 3.20 tells us our citizenship is where? In heaven. Our citizenship is not here. And we dare not think that we're not all that influenced by the world around us because the assumption of this command is that we are being influenced by the world around us. And all too often, worldliness is often identified by Christians as simply external behaviors, right? Christians don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't dance, they don't play cards, they don't go to the movies, right? That's the way it used to be taught. As a matter of fact, when I was in Bible college, my hair had to be above my collar. I could not wear a beard. I had to wear shirts with collars to class every day. And I had to wear a tie three days a week. Why three days instead of five? I don't know. But, but why did they have these kind of rules? So that we wouldn't look 
worldly. Unfortunately, all too often, the Christian message has more of the way you look on the outside than what you are on the inside, and that is much more important. Living by external pressure to conform to a standard uh, of appearance and behavior often leads to what? Powerlessness. It leads to a list of do's and don'ts, which lead to legalism and or rebellion. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that not being conformed to this age has no relation to outward matters. It does. But the outward is not the end of it. So if this isn't giving us rules about our outward behavior, and if it's not calling us to retreat from the world, what exactly is Paul warning us against? At its very core, not being conformed to this evil age is a matter of how we think. Paul is concerned about a way of thinking rather than merely behaving, though right behavior will follow naturally if our thinking is right, correct? In other words, the worldliness we're to break away from is the worldview of this age, the way they view the world. And going through the Truth Project during Sunday school on Sunday mornings, we're seeing the way the world thinks. We're not to think that way. Instead, we're to let our minds be molded by the Word of God. In the book, The Christian Mind, the author wrote, to think secularly is to think within a frame of reference bounded by the limits of our life on earth. It is to keep one's calculations rooted in this worldly criteria. To think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related directly or indirectly to man's eternal destiny as the redeemed and chosen child of God. In the author's follow-up book, Recovering the Christian Mind, he goes on to explain the characteristic of secularist values and judgments is that they give preeminence to a man-centered and world-centered, as opposed to God-centered, criteria, to limit the, uh, limitedly temporal as opposed to eternal standpoints. So, so Paul tells us negatively, do not be conformed to the kind of godless thinking that characterizes the people who have no knowledge of the eternal God. Don't think like them. And, and you know, if we were automatically given a, a vaccine against the wisdom of the world and the ways of the world the moment we were saved, Paul wouldn't have to warn us as he does here. But we don't get that vaccine. We're still in the world. Paul would never have written this transcultural, transgenerational command if we did not need to hear it. No matter where you live, no matter what century you live in, no matter how old you are, you face the philosophies and methodologies and strategies and fashions and norms and lifestyles and patterns and thinking of the world. So Paul says, be aware. Don't be squeezed into the mold of this present age. That means we have to be able to say no, right? Sometimes no is hard to say. We have to say no to secular thinking and yes to spiritual thinking. We have to say no to the social guidelines that society forces upon us and yes to the Spirit's guidance within our life. We have to say no to the world and yes to the Word. Christians don't fit in and they never will. And we're absolute fools if we make conformity the goal of our lives. You know, I ran, uh, it's always touchy when you quote rock stars. I think he was actually performing at the Brit last night. Uh, Alice Cooper made a profession of faith a number of years ago, right? He, he once said this, uh, very profound. 
Drinking beer is easy. Trashing your hotel room is easy. But being a Christian, that's a tough call. That's rebellion. He's right. You want to be a true rebel against the status quo? Be a follower of Jesus Christ. Make him the Lord of your life by presenting yourself as a living sacrifice moment by moment, day by day. You'll be going against the flow of the world. And those who look to God who created this world will find safety and security that will last forever in him, not in this world. You ever thought of what a revelation judgment day is going to be for all of us? The things we thought were so important, so crucial, so vital, the, the things that we include on our resume, the degrees we've earned, the money we made, the deals we closed, the, the friends we cultivated, the organizations we managed, the budgets we balanced, the trips we took, the portfolios we built, all that stuff that we tend to take pride in, the things that in and of themselves aren't evil, they're not wrong, they're simply the stuff of this life, but all of it added together amounts to what? Nothing. Zip, zero, zilch, nada, vanity of vanities. But it's so easy for us to get sucked into the world's way of thinking. And it's precisely at this point that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes so powerful. Jesus came to bring God to us and us to God. He is the very fullness of God in bodily form. You catch that? He's indigenous. He came as a man, did he not? But he lived as a pilgrim here upon this earth. He came to save us, and he now lives to help us. And so we have to ask him to show the truth about ourselves, and he does that through his spirit. We need to pray that he might, might break our addiction to the schemes of this dying world. This age is passing away. Why in the world would we live for what cannot last when we can live for eternal reward instead? As, as Jesus phrased it, why gain the whole world and lose your soul? why he said, why store up earthly treasures that will fluctuate and fall with the stock, stock market crashes and, and bad economies when you can store up treasures in heaven that will never fade? The point is not that we don't live in this world. We do. The point is not that we're not to make plans for our lives. We do. The point is that we have to check what we're hoping and living for. Is it things of this earth, of this age, of this world, or is it things of God. What really drives you? What keeps you going on? What excites you? If it's not something and someone beyond this life, it's no wonder we struggle to experience change, transformation in our lives. And if that's the case, ask yourself these questions. Who is your master? And be truthful with yourself. Who is your master? What are the, the main influences in your life? And where are God and his gospel and his word in all of that? Ask yourself what promises you are actually living by. What decisions and choices and habits and priorities in your life can you actually link back to rightly interpreted and applied verses of Scripture to prove your, to yourself that you're living by faith in him and not being conformed to the world? We need to engage our minds. We need to evaluate ourselves in the light of Scripture if we want to experience change as Christians. As we consider what we've seen so far in the book of Romans, it only makes sense we need to do some thinking about what we believe and who we trust and who we follow if we want to change. So it's not surprising that we find the next phrase of verse 2 emphasizing the mind is the battlefield where change happens. 
Let me close by asking you to think of what needs changing in your life right now. And think from some general idea of where your problem arises or, or the issues you struggle with to specific instances of temptations or sin in your life. Because to really change, you need to go from the general to the specific and ask the why questions of the sins in your life. What motivates me to do this sin? And whatever answer you give to that question can be addressed in verse 1 of Romans 12. Because at that point, what motivates us to sin, and when we go ahead and sin, there is someone or something else other than God as our master. We are not a living sacrifice at that point. Our own selfish desires may be ruling us, or we may be ruled by pleasing other people or other things. But we can take that to verse 1 and see that we would be better off if we'd submit to God's rule in our lives, not to our rule. What's pressing you into the mold of this age so that you're living for what is not eternal, not spiritual, and leaving you unfulfilled, unfaithful, and unfruitful? In stark contrast to conformity to the world, we should be what? Transformed by the renewing of our mind. Why? That we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And yes, we'll get into that in the weeks to come and how that involves the word of God applied to the mind and the power of the Holy Spirit. But the truths and promises of God have to replace our wrong thinking as we prayerfully seek to change as we want to be conformed to the image of Christ and not to this world. And if you need help or prayer in experiencing true change, or if you've never begun to change because you first need to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to speak with you. We have so much to be thankful for in the rich truths that God has revealed to us in the Scriptures, in the mercies that He shows to us daily. I dare you to be different. Stand up for Christ. Don't go with the flow. Go against the grain. Be a rebel. Become a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And I pray we'll respond to God's mercy this week, both with thanksgiving as living sacrifices and with a commitment to change, to be transformed. So I encourage you to pray with me as we close. And let's ask God for, for a gospel-rooted, mercy-motivated, faith-based transformation that only He can accomplish in us. Father, we come before you thankful for your mercies to us. Father, we know that you see us as righteous in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but as we look at ourselves, we know there is a process still ongoing. We are still sinners. We still struggle and fight against the sins of this world, but we know that you have something better in mind for us. So we ask that your gospel would powerfully change us, that your spirit would convict us as necessary and then encourage us and enable us to follow you, that we might change and become a better image of Jesus Christ. May we live as people of this world, uh, in this world, but uh, not as people of this world. Help us to be pilgrims in a hostile land and that we might be ever vigilant to guard against what enters our thoughts, our minds, and, Father, that we would not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. We give you the thanks that this can be done, and we pray that you might do it in us. In your name we pray. Amen.